in all the years I've been doing this, this is the very first, you know, that I've ever seen that I think really has a chance to make a difference. So whoever came up with this, kudos. Welcome to episode 454 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. This is Rye Marcatilio McCracken here at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. One component of the recently passed Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2021 was the Emergency Broadband Benefit, a $3.2 billion program designed to get families connected to available service that they otherwise might not be able to afford. The program provides a subsidy of up to $50 a month, or $75 on tribal lands, for broadband service, as well as up to $100 for a device with a household contribution for as long as the money lasts. Christopher is joined by Travis Carter, USI Fiber, Angela Seifer from the National Digital Inclusion Alliance, and Olivia Wayne from the National Consumer Law Center to talk about how the emergency broadband benefit will work and what their expectations are. They discuss who will be able to take advantage of the program and try to predict some of the challenges we might see, both for the people who need it and the small ISPs that would like to participate. Finally, the group weighs in with how providers can forge partnerships with groups like PCs for People to get hardware into homes, the need for digital navigators to help community members navigate the process of getting and staying online, and the long-term prospects for renewal of the program. Now here's Christopher talking with Travis, Angela, and Olivia. Welcome to another episode of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. I'm Christopher Mitchell at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance in St. Paul, Minnesota. I'm very excited to be talking today about the um, the Emergency Broadband Benefit Program uh, with people that have uh, different angles on it. Like this is a, an elephant and we have people that are touching different parts of the elephant to describe what it looks like and how we can... I have a better elephant at the end. Uh, Angela Seifer, who is back again after not being scared off the first time. Angela is the Director of Executives at the National Digital Inclusion Alliance. Welcome. Thank you, Chris. Excited to be here. And we also have Olivia Wayne. You know, I even Is it wine or Wayne? I should have asked this five minutes ago. Wine like the beverage. Wine like the beverage. Olivia Wine, who is an attorney at National Consumer Law Center, someone who's been around longer than the people uh, that you think have been in this space for a long time. So welcome to the show, Olivia. Thank you. And we also have um, Travis Carter, who's filling in at the last minute. Uh, Travis is the uh, chief of executives officers at USI Fiber. Thank you, Chris. And, And welcome back yourself. And hap- congratulations on an early construction season in Minnesota. What a the wonderful weather has been year. nice here. The weather has been nice. So we're, we're digging in the ground as we speak, which is very unusual. The subject is the emergency broadband benefit, which is going to be launching soon and represents a historic change in broadband policy in that uh, this is the first time the federal government is really putting a lot of money into low-income broadband access. It's in some ways the first time it's really trying to deal with this issue uh, in more urban areas as opposed to a focus on rural areas. And for people who are interested in the law, it's also a major appropriation rather than using the more typical universal service fund mechanism that we've used before. So there's a bunch of firsts. What um, of these recent historic broadband uh, pieces of legislation that have moved through Congress come into law? What's giving you hope? Like, what are you really enthusiastic about right now? So let me start with you, Olivia. I would say that it's this notion that uh, a robust broadband benefit, 
for the longest time, you know, our goal here is we, we don't have a two-tiered sort of system for the poor and those that can afford broadband. And I think that this emergency broadband benefit is an opportunity to, to build out, as temporary as it is, this robust broadband benefit. And let's let's come back to that two-tiered. I don't want to lose track of that. Let's let's talk about how it's not two-tiered and why that's important in, in a few minutes. Angela, 30 seconds. I mean what the 30, yeah, the 30 second question. It's it's all gives me hope, Chris. Like the fact that we have this emergency broadband benefit, the fact that at the local level, folks are using stimulus money, they use CARES Act money, they're likely to use American Rescue Plan money to address inequities in our digital spaces. Glory be, right? Like we're, we're finally on our way. And just a follow-on question. Are you enjoying the hallucinations that come without sleeping? <laughs> <laughs> Angela well, is one of the busiest people might, in the space. But my spouse and my family, they might disagree. <laughs> is, Travis, uh, are you filled with hope or are you filled with angst as you try to navigate a new federal program? Well, I mean, the, the exciting thing for us being an urban provider is this is one of the very few programs that I'm aware of that we actually qualify for. So we are hopping on board and trying to understand the ins and outs of how these programs are going to work. And hopefully we can shed some light on that because there, there is a little bit of confusion on how, how we're going to execute this project. But hopefully okay. at the end of this, we'll, we'll be a little bit more enlightened. I am enthusiastic about how there is so much opportunity now. There is so much money from the American Rescue Plan and other um, recent laws that have passed that have very few, um, very few qualifications um, attached to them that local governments can use creatively. And I'm really resolving to try to focus on the, the good creative uses rather than the bad creative uses that we will inevitably see. And I would just point out that, uh, for instance, I don't think I would have been, I, I definitely would not have been as enthusiastic about Alabama's program in which they created this broadband subsidy. And they really implemented it in a flexible way that made a lot of sense. And I probably wouldn't have selected that if I was in charge of all these programs, but they really made it work. So there's, uh, there's a lot of value in, in this money being, being able to be used creatively. So uh, it's exciting. Now, Let's, uh, let's maybe start with a couple of basic facts. So, um, Olivia, I, let me ask you to help me out with this first, because I think you, um, as a, <laughs> a trained and practicing lawyer, <laughs> um, have to deal with facts more than the rest of us. Um, we're talking about, is it $3.1 billion for the emergency broadband benefit in the initial allocation? 3.2. And then there's another amount that has been added to that as well, right? Uh, there there no, are legislative proposed. proposals to add um, an, an additional $6 billion uh, to this benefit because there's a strong concern that the demand will be so great that this money uh, will flow fairly quickly out the door. Um, okay. Now, tell us, what is the, what's like a, a thumbnail sketch of how this program works? And I should preface all of this, my apologies, uh, with a disclosure that I am on the board of the Universal Service Administrative Company, but am not authorized to speak on behalf of the board or on behalf of USAC. And I'm, I'm participating in this wonderful conversation solely as a staff attorney at the National Consumer Law Center. 
Um, yes. So if people are not familiar with USAC, it is a, it's an agency that, that basically makes the will of the FCC happen in many ways. And you are involved with that, but none of your opinions um, at all represent uh, them or your position on their board. Correct. Correct. And some of what I'm about to say, or I, and I don't know the questions you're about to ask me, maybe like my personal sort of reaction versus National Consumer Law Center's position, but I'll, I'll let you know when we get there. But to, to scroll back, this exciting program um, will be for consumers an up to $50 a month benefit for broadband service. And, and if you live on tribal lands, it's up to $75 a month. So it's quite substantial. Um, and depending on the provider's choice, uh, it could include an up to $100 uh, benefit for a connected device, laptop, desktop, or tablet. And I'm going to let you slide because I deeply respect the fact that you know much more about all this stuff than I do. Uh, I just hate the term consumers. And I know that you deal with actual consumers and other aspects of your work. When it comes to broadband, I always call them subscribers. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what's your preference? Customer? Oh, customers great. Subscribers great. I'll just, if you see me shudder a little bit, that's that's why. I'm, um, I, I, I've steadfastly refused the idea that the internet is for consumers. Uh, it is for producers, makers, participants. Um, the internet is not something that we can allow to turn into cable television. So um, that's that's why I think it's important. But I'm, I've now derailed us on one of my hobby horses. I'm not going to, I swear to myself, I'm not going to get into how it's important to capitalize internet. I'm just going to turn to Angela and I'm going to ask, um, how does the EBB compare to other efforts um, and, and what's different about EBB from other things we've seen to try to um, connect low-income folks? So from the federal government, we have uh, Lifeline. So Lifeline is our officially communication subsidy that is phone and broadband. In reality, folks use it for a mobile phone with a little bit of data. Everybody who's listening is going to be like, a little bit of data isn't really broadband. <laughs> no, a little bit of data, it's not broadband. So we have we have Lifeline, but think of it more like a phone subsidy, because in reality, that's how it ends up playing out. Um, and then when the pandemic hit, we had, uh, we had schools, we had community-based organizations, we had uh, community institutions purchasing broadband for folks for, for in-home use. That was brand new. We had prior to the pandemic, there was a smattering of those, right? Also prior to the pandemic was just a smattering of uh, what we've been calling gap networks. The idea that a community would build a network to address affordability for a low-income neighborhood. Now we're seeing a lot more of those too. So, And that's a, often a Wi-Fi cities. network that's available like often in the streets, but may not penetrate inside the homes. No, we're all, I'm talking about home service. Uh, I really have little interest in street service. Like I really want to focus in on home service. So gap mm -hmm. networks, we think of them as places where the internet does get into the home and it's a low cost or it's free and it's being done often by a school district, but also sometimes a community institution, a community-based provider. But anyhow, I'm off track again. I think I learned that from Chris. <laughs> so, that's what keeps it interesting. <laughs> that's right. So that's... Um, in terms of what was already out there, Lifeline, right, where we say kinda, and then it was these community efforts that mostly popped up during the pandemic, but we didn't really have any pot of money that was helping address affordability by really paying for people's internet service. That's what EBB is. There's, there's an overlap, Bridger sort of product that was out there pre-pandemic, and those were the low cost options from some of the bigger providers. 
Um, but oftentimes they had like a waiting period or if you owe, if you had a past debt with that company, you were ineligible. Um, and so one of the things that's different about the way the emergency broadband benefit program is structured is there's no waiting period. Past debt with a company is not a barrier and there are no early termination fees. So those customer protections are built right in. I noticed and I appreciate it. The, <laughs> um, the, the program that I like to note um, from Comcast, Internet Essentials, um, has flaws and, and many people attack it for its flaws. But it also was, I think, stands alone as being an effective, good program uh, that did more than all of the other big cable and telephone companies combined to connect low-income folks. So I just, I like to put that point out there in part because it's just an opportunity for me to say I'm not always criticizing Comcast. <laughs> so, um, so now, if you're, uh, how do you, how do you qualify for this, Olivia and uh, Travis? I'm not going to forget about you for the whole show. We're going to talk oh, about ISPs in a second. Yeah. I'm learning. Um, well, there's the traditional. Uh, if you are eligible for Lifeline or participating in Lifeline, so that eligibility criteria, that's um, participation in Medicaid, SNAP, um, supplemental security income, HUD assisted housing, uh, low income veterans pension program. And then there's like a tribal subset of programs um, for the enhanced uh, tribal. Uh, lifeline program. So in addition to those traditional lifeline, and, and you can get into income eligibility, just documenting your income is at or below 135% of poverty. Um, and in addition, the emergency broadband benefit added um, participation in the Pell Grant program to help um, low-income college students uh, take advantage of this program. Uh, it, participation in the free and reduced school lunch program uh, documentation of a severe uh, loss of income uh, due to COVID. Um, so those are additional ways that households can qualify for the emergency broadband benefit program. Um, and one of the things about that is that the, the entire household qualifies. And uh, even if only one member of the household uh, fits into one of those categories, if all the members of the household fit into the categories, they still qualify for one subsidy. It is one per household. The connected device is also one per household. And they have to affirmatively opt in, right? Um, it's, it, there's no op opportunity for an ISP to like mass input people, I believe. Y yes, the, the individual household needs to go through a determined, there's a, duplicate, a duplicates check done um, to make sure that you're not doing, applying for more than one benefit. But um, in terms of affirmative action on behalf of the customer, customer. <laughs> um, there's a two-step process that we know of right now in the design of this program. Customers will need to verify that they're eligible. They can do that um, by going straight to uh, the national verifier or... Um, which is online. Which is on, online, but it's paper too. You, okay. There's a paper process. You, um, there, or you could go in through a provider of your choice. Um, get into this program so that you can determine your eligibility that way because um, providers that have their own sort of eligibility screening process, for example, going back to like uh, a Comcast type of product, they've got this existed before emergency broadband benefit. They have their own screening criteria. So in theory, this is designed so that Comcast would be able to say, I want to use that criteria because I want to participate 
and I want to, you know, I want to participate and I want to use my own verification, or they could say, I want to participate and I want to use the national verifier process. Step one for the customer is eligibility determination. Step two is affirmative action on the customer's part to pick which provider and service that they, they would like uh, for this EBB benefit. Now we're going to um, skip to what it's like on the ISP side, and then we're going to come back to really focus on what it'll take to make this successful, to make sure that, that people will know about it and be able to use it effectively. So Travis, tell us a little bit about what, what your experience has been in signing up for this. Sure. So we, there was the first step was signing up with the FCC, and that was relatively straightforward. I think that took a couple of days to get the approval. And then we, we signed up with USAC to be a provider. And there was some information you had to provide, you know, all made sense. Like you're not a brand new provider. You've actually been providing services, et cetera, et cetera. So we're waiting for authorization on that front. To nail that down, I think for folks that are interested, you had to have documented that you were a provider before December 1st of last year, yep, yep. which you could do with other federal forms you'd proven, you'd demonstrated. And then to get automatically qualified, I think you also had to offer a, a, a low-income program before uh, April of 2020. And, and then you would be automatically qualified. And I suspect, Travis, you're, you, didn't, um, you didn't have like an officially documented low-income program. Yeah, so so you have to be vetted. So yeah, we've got, there's some process happening behind the curtain that I assume we're some phase through right now. We're, we're, we're under the assumption that we'll navigate through that. Um, and then the question becomes, when does it start? So that's a little bit unclear. So what we've decided to do is start in April. And regardless of if the program is going or not, because there's going to be a, uh, an onboarding process and it's going to take some time to get people educated that this exists, that they may qualify for it. And then we're going to go ahead and if it takes three months or five months for the program to start, we're just going to provide the free service until the actual program starts. And then if the program runs, because the other variable is if the program runs for, let's just say conversations like six months, then what we're going to do is we're going to double that on the back end under the assumption that there may be, if this program is successful, that there may be another tranche of money allocated to it. So what I don't want to do is onboard people, offload them, try to grab them again, you know, because where most of my expenses is on, onboarding them and getting them going. So if, if we have three months that we'll cover until the program starts, again, I'm just guessing, six months of program, then another six months on us, you know, this could be a, a year, year and a half benefit, and then, or even longer, if there's additional allocation from the from the government. And I give big kudos to Travis for doing that. Yeah. yeah. Otherwise, otherwise, I, I'm worried that it will start, and it'll just take so long to get it going that it may end up being kind of marginally successful in the beginning. I'd rather just get the ball rolling now, and um, see how we do. Now, does that change, Travis? I mean, is, in your calculation, are you expecting? more of new customers to come on that use EBB? Or do you think a sizable number of your existing customers would transition to using EBB if they're eligible? I, I, my guess is we'll have a, a relative, a small percentage of our current customers probably take advantage of it. What I'm really hoping for is to attract new people, that the financial piece has been has been the hurdle to get them activated. And I give kudos to whoever wrote the program. I mean, $50 really helps 
gets them going. And, you know, so what we're going to provide is gigabit service up and down. And then the way we were envisioning doing it is we'll, we will send them a bill, but it'll say $50 service fee. And then it'll say a $50 EBB credit on the because same. Your, your ordinary, oh no, I take that back. So your, your $49.99 price point is your intro price point. Price yeah, point we're, yeah, we're just going to, we're but just that's for go, a slower speed service. Yeah. We're just going to go to the top speed as far as EBB. Because there's not, you know, if this program works the way I'm, I'm expecting, if there's not going to be a ton of costs for us, we're going to send in a monthly um, allocation of, of subscribers we have, I assume, to this USAC organization, and hopefully that gets vetted and we get a check back. So, you know, it's almost to us, I view it kind of like as a, a bulk program where we will do with like a bulk MDU and we give, re- we give higher service for a reduced rate. Travis, what do you charge now for that gigabit service? Uh, $70. So you are then cutting it by $20. Yeah. And getting the 50. Yeah. My hope is when, when we, when we, when we give people proper broadband, my hope is to kind of get them addicted to it and use it because what I really would love for this to be is, you know, let's say four or five, 10 years from now, the, the kids that were using this when they were younger and got kind of an online lifestyle going turn into customers for us when they, when they get into the workforce, that's the selfish side of me, or maybe not so selfish, but so if we can get them online and give them a proper service, the, the, the part we're still dabbling with is do we give them a router too? And so we're going to, we're, we're working that through my, my thought is, is we'll go ahead and provide a router. I don't know if that qualifies for this hundred dollar program or not. That's what I think it is. Okay. okay. Angel is quite confident. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I, I love it, actually. It's hard to figure this all out. Yeah, right. Yeah, no, I spent a lot of time reading that report yeah. in order, as I'm sure Olivia did, too. Uh, so it doesn't... I didn't, but you knew that. <laughs> you don't need to, Chris. You have Olivia and I. Uh, so, no, it doesn't count for the device reimbursement, but it does count. So when a traditional customer comes in, do you charge them up front for the router on their first bill or do you divide that cost amongst their monthly? How do you usually yeah. do that? So, so we will either sell them the router at our cost or we will charge them like an $8 a month, like rental if they choose, where we will manage their Wi-Fi experience for them. Okay. And, and then into, into you know, perpetuity. Right. So, so that very first bill then that first month, if you're tacking the router on there, I assume the router is more than $20. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So then, so they still only get the $50 and then you would be, you would either charge them for the router or they would get it. If you were give, if they were purchasing a service from you that was less than $50, then some portion of the router cost could have been included in that 50, but you're already at 50. So. Yeah. So I guess, again, trying to provide the ideal experience, we should give them a router. I agree. Yeah, what is the alternative they do, if they do not get a router? They can plug into the Ethernet jack. I just think it's a poor experience. So, okay. So I'm learning here. So, so now what we're going to do is we'll give them the router and we'll give them the service for $50 a month. And then, the, then I think we have our best chance of success. I think that's a solid strategy, Travis. Yeah. Olivia, I, I, were you going to yeah. ask a question? No, you may not. Look, I'm the guest. <laughs> no, I was, saying, I was just, asking if Olivia wanted to ask a question. I would just talk over people myself. <laughs> I just want to give Travis the huge kudos that I think that's awesome. Yes. Yeah, so if, if an ISP did not have Travis's vision for this, it's worth noting that 
um, they would not be able to craft a program that would, for instance, be $50 a month and be lower than the tiers they had been offering before December 1st. So ISPs, I believe, can only use the EBB toward tiers that they've had before, uh, or if they improve upon those tiers, as Travis has, but they could not, for instance, craft a new slower program that would be EBB eligible. Olivia, the USAC and the FCC have considered data caps as well, I believe, right? Can you speak to that at all? Because I know that the um, your expression suggests that you would not like to speak to that because it's probably a bit esoteric compared to all these other things. But I believe the FCC is collecting data on that. In the initial forms, you that's one of the questions, right, Travis, that you, you're asked to fill out, maybe in the, the USAC one? Ooh, I actually didn't fill it out, so I'm not... Uh... I can ask though. She's just. I, I, I have it right here. It's the USAC oh. form that um, this is the phase two. So providers have a two-step process. Some of them, unless they're already eligible telecommunications carriers, then they just have a one-step process. But all all participants must apply to USAC. They must file with USAC. And in the USAC filing under service offerings, they you need to attach documentation detailing each service offering for which your company plans to seek reimbursement through the EBB. And this includes all of the following details. Bullet number one is speed and data caps. So yes, it is being collected gotcha. up front. And the, the, the provide, so this EBB can be used on wireline or wireless service. And we know most wireless services have data caps. It just has to be a particular plan that was offered on December 1st at that data cap and they can't reduce the data cap. Um, but also it's important to note that this offer is not eligible on per gig services, right? It has to be like very clear about what you're getting. Okay. And then we have a question whether uh, ISPs are required to provide a uh, 25 megabits down, three megabits up the broadband definition. Nope. And is that a good idea? Go ahead, Olivia. It, it, it was one of those sort of balancing um, considerations because this is a, an emergency program that we need to stand up as quick as we can to get relief to customers as fast as we can. And we want to encourage as many providers to, to enroll. Um, and, and at this point now, there's like a rolling you know, um, process. So... If you haven't applied and you are thinking about it, we strongly hope that you apply, you know, speaking as a, a low-income consumer advocate. Now, if you were in a rural area and you did not have 25.3 available to you, I think you would be deeply disappointed if you could not get a subsidy merely because you did not have the infrastructure available. And I suspect that's why they wrote the rule that way. They, they, also, they wrote it that way for what you just described, Chris, but also in order to encourage more providers to participate. Um, and then that, they, that there could be an, a lot of possibilities, choices for the consumer, for the customer uh, to choose from. Yes, we all wanna make sure that we keep raising the bar as to what is what we think is, is real. Um, but we also don't wanna keep rural areas that have less than that from being able to participate and um, and if we want more providers to participate, we need to make it as appealing to them as possible. Right. If I was to create Chris Mitchell fly-by-night wireless in Minneapolis to go head-to-head -head with Travis and offer the EBB, people would have a choice. And hopefully they would do their homework and go with Travis uh, for that offer rather than me. 
but you'd have to have been in business, right? You right. Know? I, if I was to do that, I would have such foresight. I would have done it a while ago. Yeah, a while ago. <laughs> Yeah. Thank you for for the for the flag on that. Um, then one of the things I wanted Chris, to note that we don't can we, yeah, can we go touch on this hundred dollar credit a little bit what that qualifies for and what it doesn't because that's that's a component that might be interesting to build into the program. Yeah, Olivia, do you want to jump on that? It is um, providers can uh, offer a connected device defined as a laptop, desktop, or tablet. There's also got to be this part two where customers are asked to pay between $10 and $50 um, for that connected device. So it cannot be offered for free, um, but it can be offered to the customer for as low as $10. Or and as it cannot as be a mobile phone. It cannot be a mobile phone. So what that would look like okay. for you, Travis, would be you partnering with a provider, yep. either a refurbisher or a vendor of, of new machines. I see for people. Yep, 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 yep. Exactly right. As you know, they're like around the corner from you yep. and working out a deal with them so that your customers, participants of EBB for the service, then also get an option to purchase a very low cost computer. Like if they could come in at that, you know, anywhere between the 10 and 50 on their, for out of their pocket and the government's throwing in a hundred and we know a refurbisher like PCs for people yeah. already has reasonable prices. Are, are we able to throw in money into this too? Or does the, so, so yeah. if the customer, if, 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 if the big G government threw in a hundred, we threw in a hundred. And then what you're saying is that the individual has to throw in at least 10. Yes, that's correct. So $210 we have to play with, and they can be a basically something running a proper operating system, a laptop or a computer, a, a camera. It needs to have a camera. It needs to be camera. video capable. Like that's why they said no mobile phones. And it, it can't be like the cheapest thing yeah, yeah, out yeah. there that, you know, it's 10 years old and doesn't have camera on it. So that they set those kind of standards to make sure thinking about distance learning and remote work. No, what, what is your guys opinion of that? Cause I've been a real fan of like desktop computers and it seems like these refurbishers have a lot of them but it seems like now you have something that can be in the home there's a fixed like piece of device and it has a proper ethernet cord you can plug in so it just i don't know is there any opinion out there of what is the right thing to put in people's hands so pcs for people and other refurbishers will tell you nobody wants the desktops exactly yeah people want laptops right it's it's just more convenient i wouldn't buy it like you know, Often I, these I are well, and, and I mean I don't want to stereotype too yeah. broadly because there's all manner of different people who would qualify and need this help. But um, a lot of this population is somewhat mobile, and um, and if you are moving around a bit, it can be pretty much of a, a hassle. Uh, imagine you know not everyone has a desk in their in their house already, so you might be working off the couch or something. There's just a variety of reasons why that might. Okay, be all right. So 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 laptops, and I'm assuming like ones that run Windows or a Mac. Mac, not these Chromebooks, right? Because they can't run anything other than. Yeah, I I, I would head yeah. towards the more functional. And, yeah. and then the reason for the tablets, Travis, is often for our older adults. So for, for an older adult where digital literacy is more of a struggle, they might prefer a tablet for the ease of use. Not, not all older adults, but some. Okay. Okay. So, so you're, so a tablet might actually be the preferred route then. Huh? For some households. For a household where there's parents and kids and we're thinking like long-term, 
let's take the example where we're all like, everybody should learn to code. Yeah, yeah. we'll try that on, <laughs> on a crappy yeah, computer. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Then, okay, so sorry, not to, not to monopolize the conversation, but what, what, what is the consideration for tech support and e-learning and things like that? Because just giving somebody that's not very technically savvy a computer and an internet connection for, for 10 bucks, who answers the thousands of questions that come in? This should be a national organization that would deal with some kind of yeah. digital inclusion that would be an alliance of, of local folks that were uh, trying to solve these problems. Okay, I swear to you, I did not set Travis up with that question. <laughs> I'm, I'm just, I, no, I'm just curious because that, for, when you look at like a, from a cost model, that's where the real expense is for a company like ours. Yeah. So that's, this is why we exist, Travis. This is why NDIA is here because there's organizations across the country that have been doing that now for years, but they pretty much were operating underneath the radar because okay. nobody was paying attention to digital equity issues. They're the ones that tried to get you roped into to contracts um, over the years to, um, to provide the funding. That's where um, the, in dealing with the city of Minneapolis and things like that, they're trying to funnel money to, to groups like that. Um, in, in Minneapolis, I, you know, I can't tell you who those actual individuals are right now, but I know that there's several that are trying to do this. And I feel like they feel like they have not had the tools to succeed historically. You actually, in Minneapolis, you have a whole AmeriCorps program that provides that kind of, yeah, CTEP provides that digital literacy kind of support to multiple, I think they're at 12 or 15 AmeriCorps members, providing that kind of digital literacy support to community-based organizations. And, and I think this was, was a point Chris was going to get to in our conversation anyhow, which is that EBB alone isn't going to solve it. Um, and so we have to have that, that hands-on kind of support. And that's the part that's not really covered in this money, right? So that, those, that $350 billion for local and state governments, that's where I think we might see some of what you're describing, Travis, where that, that hands-on, who has the tech support, who can provide digital navigation, can we pay for, for some of that with that $350 billion? Okay, so, so so just imagine you're just a little ISP out here providing internet. How in the world do you navigate all these government programs and paperwork and and put this all together? I, I'm just talking, you know, for the you know however many of us that are out there, it's it's a big job, you know, while you're also trying to hook up your thousands of customers every month that want service. So yeah, I want to take a shot at that, and then I want to yeah. ask Olivia what what she thinks about that too, because. Um, um, Olivia thinks about these issues and can bring experience from other uh, actual consumer-oriented programs um, to incur it to help deal with these issues that we've wrestled with over many decades. Um, I would say that one thing is, is that Travis, you shouldn't be solving this. Like to the extent that that we are asking independent or to internet service providers to be um, solving the digital divide, we will fail. We do not ask Cargill or Archer Daniels Midland to solve hunger worldwide, right? Like I'm not sending them indignant letters being like, why is there malnutrition in the United States? That would be crazy if I did that. We recognize that just because they are good at a specific type of food provisioning or being involved in the food chain, that they don't necessarily solve the problem. And I think this, this idea that Comcast, AT&T, or USI Fiber should be the ones to solve the problem is misplaced. And I would tell you that I think the city of Minneapolis needs to step up and take some more responsibility on that sort of thing. I think the libraries would love to if they had the budget to be able to help. Uh, but Olivia, how, how do you respond to that? I think... I see the world the way you do. <laughs> and that's there, why you're on the show. <laughs> there are roles. And, and, and I do think that we do need to think of this, though, comprehensively as we walk in. 
right? I mean, originally back in the day, many of us remember when, when folks would say broadband investment, people always thought, oh, that's, that's build out. That's all that is. But, you know, then we would say, if you build it, can they afford it? Affordability is a piece of this puzzle. But it's also, if you build it and they can afford it, can they use it? The skills are, this is the three-legged stool. I mean, we, we will not close the broadband digital divide with just any one leg or any two legs of the stool. But the, there isn't a current program that's, that takes care of everything in one fell swoop. So it is sort of, you know, aligning the pieces. And that's the challenge. I do want to make sure that we have plenty of time. So I'm going to say, suggest we, we can come back to any questions that we still have on that. But Angela, what does it take to make sure this is successful? I feel like for a lot of us, there's this belief of like, all right, well, if the ISPs know what they're doing, and if there's a pretty clear process for people, then hey, presto, uh, it'll work. But I feel like you have spent a lot of time in the comments to the FCC. I think, Olivia, you have as well concerned that the FCC, for instance, has not learned the lessons of Alabama with their program and, and, and just all the other history that, that is difficult to reach out to people, educate them, and motivate them to take advantage of these sorts of programs. The digital inclusion programs that NDIA represents. So we represent over 500 digital inclusion programs inside community anchor institutions, libraries, housing authorities, local governments all across the country. And they have they have learned from doing this work over the years, and in particular during the pandemic, when all of a sudden there was CARES Act money to pay for connectivity, right? That was really the first time that there was that folks were like, hey, there's a pot of money and we could use it to pay for somebody's connectivity. And that happened. And then so we had these big projects where they're buying hundreds of accounts. And hotspots are like the best example of this. Buying a hotspot, dropping it off at a home, and it doesn't get turned on. And then schools in particular, like, well, how come student, you know, whomever didn't turn on their hotspot? And it becomes this big um, complex issue that we, we know part of it is the skills, part of it is that, um, that support level, but also you got to mix in privacy and safety. There's all kinds of reasons somebody wouldn't turn on a machine that's provided by a government organization, right? So um, I think what, what we know is that we have to have that community-based trusted support and there's data out there that shows this. There was a great article, um, an academic article by Lloyd Levine um, who partnered with um, CETF, California Emerging Technology Fund, and looked at different ways to help people sign up. And he's like, oh, that one didn't work. Oh, that one didn't work. <laughs> it was the first academic article where I'd read the whole thing front to back. And I was fascinated because he really went through, oh, nope, tried that. Mm, nope, mm, tried this. <laughs> and, and so really what he comes down to at the end is it, it needs to be a community-based trusted entity that's doing it. And even then, you're not going to get everybody to sign up. And Travis, you've had experience with this, and I want to come back to that in a second, but first ask if Olivia has anything to add on to that. Oh, uh, absolutely. The role of the trusted intermediary is critical in, in, in even like the basic, how, how do you do the outreach and education? How do you help people enroll in this program? Um, really, that's going to be critical. And, and I, I see it more like... Um, you know, in a relay race with a baton handoff, right? So 
materials developed by the Federal Communication Commission, by the Universal Service Administrative Company, sort of, you know, that, that are the rough materials uh, that sort of list providers in a state, what services they're offering. Things that then groups in Angela's network can take and shape. These are the trusted uh, intermediaries and, you know, explain like, this is how you enroll. These are your choices. This is how this program works. That, that there's roles for everybody and lanes, but at a certain point, there needs to be that handoff to the trusted intermediary to really sort of bring it home. And, and I think, you know, but, but the intermediary is going to need those plug and play materials um, because that's, information housed higher up in, you know, Travis, the information that you're putting into these applications, you know, some of that's going to be what sort of informs, you know, which states, you know, and what services so that can, you know, the customer options um, make sense, right? You don't, you don't want the nationwide picture. You need something mm -hmm. more tailored. Yep, yep. I was just remembering a story that Travis had told me about a, a person who had called up and and he really wanted to get signed up immediately. I think it was after the pandemic had really kicked in. And you had looked back and found that you'd sent him hundreds of pieces of mail. And then he was indignant that you couldn't sign him up the day that he was finally ready for mm -hmm. it. And, um, and I think it's relevant here because someone is going to have to make sure people understand about this. And you are not in a position to, um, you know, put all of your, even if you put your entire marketing heft behind it, um, you know, the glorious USI fiber marketing machine. Um, I don't know that you would make a dent uh, in terms of being effective to spread the word about this. No. And, and that we're going to have to partner with someone like people's PCs for people. And, you know, well, you and I, you and I know we have tried everything we can think of you know, we've given free internet away before we've tried to get people to sign up and there's, I, I, I can't put my finger on why we get such low adoption. You know, we know, we know the buildings that we're in that, you know, would, would qualify for this program, but we just can't get, we can't get anyone to sign up even for free. So I'm, I'm kind of wondering if the angle is maybe they don't have technology or they don't know who to talk to, to get educated on technology Maybe it's not so much an access issue as I, I don't know. I'm just we just have never been able to put, you know, you and I have talked over over dinner about this, Chris, before about how we can try, you know, and I think so far we have all of two people that are on the program out of all of Minneapolis that, that we've tried to get, you know, we've given we've given them access for free. And I think we made in multiple buildings, in multiple buildings. Yeah. And we just we just do not get very much adoption at all. So, so what it often comes down to, Travis, is is partnering with that local organization. You, internet service providers in general don't always have high ratings in terms of, you know, customer service. Yep, Not yep. talking about you specifically. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But the, like how folks view um, someone that's representing in the ISP or even the materials that came from the internet service provider but a community-based organization that's already doing something else in that community. They're the ones that run the food bank or they provide, they run the senior center or, you know, they have the new resident services, whatever they do something else. Those are the folks you want to partner with because they're already trusted by the population you want to reach. And this might be a naive question on my part, but probably the question that resonates with people that are in my shoes across the country yeah. Who are these people? Where do we find them? I have no idea. Are they interested in technology or 
are they really interested in just the more sustainable pieces of life, like housing and food and educate? I don't know. You know, I wouldn't yeah. even know where to start. The first place to start is on NDIA's website, digitalinclusion.org. You click on affiliates, you see a map and you see who, who like for you, really, it's the, it's the CTEP folks. It's those, it's partnering um, with them to make sure that they know what you offer. Uh, that's, and that's not even you laying out any cash, right? That's just you educating folks who are already working in the community on this issue about what you have out there. And they're going to be like, oh, sweet. Right? Well, you should you should meet with them over lunch or dinner and buy them yeah. too, but, because they get yeah. paid very little. They well, I, I, no, but, 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 but to your point though, is that, our role or is that their role to be looking for people like us? It, it is both because okay, I can tell okay, you okay. in the past, some have tried and sometimes an internet service provider will be receptive and sometimes they won't. And it's also the pandemic has changed things. The number of organizations addressing digital equity has just skyrocketed. Yep, okay, so, okay. So those organizations who you were just saying, they're like, no, that's not our job, right? Our job is to feed people. And that's how they viewed it prior to the pandemic. And then the pandemic hit. A good example are those that um, provide services to new residents. And I, so I live in central Ohio. We have a large, we actually, there's like a question is who has a higher Somalian population? I saw you guys. Yep, yep. yep. Right? Oh, I know the answer. So, yeah. <laughs> so if, um, if, if, the, if an organization is providing services to help folks adjust to life in the US, you know, providing housing, language services, all of that, they had pretty much been doing that in person. The pandemic hit and they're like, uh, we, can't, we can't do our jobs anymore. We can't meet the mission. And so then they started to figure out how to do digital inclusion, right? They had to do it or else they couldn't help the people they were intended to help. So now the number of folks who want to partner with you is way higher than it was before. Okay, well, that, they don't know you're open to partnering. So I want to I want to bring this back to EBB as we as we go in and now we have a question uh, that is how a person that might be for instance in a rural area is there a place they can look to find out what programs are available near them There will be These tools are being built out now and um it's it's a stay tuned uh definitely um NDIA's got a website with EBB resources the federal communication has a landing page on broadband benefit. Um, and that the late breaking announcements will be coming to that FCC website. So I encourage folks that are interested, especially if you, you play more of an intermediary role, like helping people um, find out more information, learn about programs, um, definitely register. But individual consumers, if you are, are able to track this and follow, register on that FCC website because you will be first in line with uh, late breaking, you know, tools that are coming out, um, materials. Um, and, I, and I think that there's going to be, if you're in that intermediary sort of function, that nav navigator function, you know, um, materials dedicated to you as well. Um, and certainly for the providers, they've got their own uh, series of information. What, what Olivia is referring to is that you have an option of signing up as an outreach partner. Um, with the on the on that EBB site for the web, for the FCC, and so from there, what you get then is okay. Here's the latest. Here's the materials, right? So not a lot's come through yet because they're, it's still early days. But they have promised us that's the tool that they're going to use. You know, good old fashioned email to tell us what's happening. A couple of details I wanted to make sure that we hit uh, for internet service providers that have multiple territories. If they are offering in one spot, they got to offer it everywhere. 
uh, is how I read the rules. Um, I see a nod from Angela. Um, it's not clear that open access networks, um, how they fit in, although um, I know that some are applying and trying to work through the process, but the FCC in the instructions that I read, I didn't read it cover to cover like certain other people on this call that are hoity-toity, but um, the instructions did suggest that there needs to be a retail relationship with the uh, subscriber. Yes. So, Billing, customer service, service quality, that sort of, you know, provider customer relationship. And, and, and it is the, you can't cherry pick. So I don't think that really applies to the open access network. In fact, I was just had a conversation with the folks at Utopia about that. It's really who's, who is, who is billing the customer um, and what area are they serving? Okay. And then I really want to make sure we, we talked about it, but we didn't say it specifically. Um, Olivia, just give us a, a quick wrap up on um, the two tiered and, and how this is different. Um, we addressed it in terms of what Travis is offering, but, but how have things been in the past and how is this, why is it important that this is different? Well, I, I think that um, the traditional lifeline services program um, has been hampered by the 925 per month subsidy that that subsidy amount has been sort of fixed for a while and uh that's what's making it difficult i believe and that provides the service that that i would consider substandard from the sort of things that as, as a person that that has a um a decent paying job and lives in a you know a place where i'm paying for um sort of what we think of as standard tiers of service um and that for the first time um the government will be subsidizing a service that's sort of available generally rather than a special crippled service. There are two things to keep in mind moving forward. Um, you can have a lifeline um, service and the EBB. It doesn't have to be with the same provider, but it could be. And if you are um, enrolled in lifeline, then you are automatically eligible for EBB. So that is something to keep in mind. So do we have any sense, is the way it, the legislation written that when the fund is dried up, the program's over? Is that how these work? Yes, so. the, the program rules are going to try and stabilize the, the EBB participation role. So okay. closer to, um, and the FCC and the Universal Service Administrative Company, they're going to be regularly reporting sort of the, that spend out rate with a, you know, perhaps some other additional information about, um, you know, the uptake, the number of participants and such. So that, you know, folks can get sort of a handle of when we're close to that time. But the rules are set up so that, you know, you provider will get at least 50% of your reimbursement rate that final month. So in order to sort of make that happen, they're gonna lock uh, who can enroll before then, maybe a month or so before, okay. to stabilize the EBB role. So at least that, that function will be stable going in as they, they calculate out uh, the closing up. And, and this is gonna be critical for the outreach and education. One, when people sign up for this, that they know this is a, a temporary program. Um, no. the, it will not last forever, but then okay. as we get closer to, you know, that form of education of what's next, because customers cannot be automatically enrolled into um, the provider service. They have to affirmatively agree. 
This is what I really wanted to jump into because what Travis, you're doing is kind of interesting in that you would continue it without charging them, which I think is not contemplated by the FCC rules. They want to make sure that people have to affirmatively respond. Yes. They'd like to keep getting service, which means I think some number of ISPs are going to get irate calls from people saying, why is my service off? Can you imagine signing all these people up and then shutting them all off? That's a political nightmare. I mean, we'll be in the newspaper the next day, you know, we shut off. So I wanted to ask, you know, other programs, since I'm not familiar with this, this, by the way, this is completely fascinating. In prior programs, if they're wildly successful, does the government tend to continue them or not? Or is it, does it depend? Is it more of a political exercise than a- That's what elections are for. Okay. Okay. (laughs) But but to say that there are already um, vehicles out there that would put an additional- you know, $6 billion into the EBB as structured now. So the accessible, affordable internet for all act, which is, seems to be the language that the Democrats will be putting into the infrastructure bill, most likely, which includes the digital equity act, which Angela deserves a lot of credit with her team for, for working on, um, uh, would put uh, a lot more money into that. And and it would double the amount of money that's put in, put in already, which is important because we're talking about like, we're not talking about 12 million eligible households here, right? We're talking about like tens of million, like, I mean, like 30, 40 million households, like, like protect, potentially 25% of the United States may be eligible for this. So that money could go quickly if people really subscribe to it. Well, and that's, that, that was kind of my worry is. I think, I think Angela's going to jump in. Yep. So real quick, you get a bunch of people signed up. Do we have to shut them off? That's right. So so let me answer that question. Because part of so when it's wrapping up, the providers need to say to those who have enrolled what their options are. So, Travis, you're what you're going to be telling them is different from what most of the providers are going to be telling people. But then even at the end of what you've decided to where you've decided to cover it yourself, then you still need to tell them something at that point. And so what I would encourage you then is to offer them that discount offer that you that you've been wanting that you've been talking about. Right. So like, okay, so the federal subsidy is ending our extra subsidy to you now is ending. So now you have the option of continuing at the $70 level or you can take advantage of this discount offer. Here's the here's the um, service that you even here's the price. Sorry. I just, I just, again, I don't have an opinion either way. I just wonder if it's like political suicide, if you're wildly successful in this program and the program dries up and ultimately you have to, you know, you got to collect something. I mean, this is this, and, and you yeah, leave this, thousands this gets into of public. On, yeah. I mean, it's it, into it, public it policy. Problem. Where, I mean, this is where Olivia really lives because the the point of the Universal Service Fund um, is that it was designed in a way that would not require ongoing appropriations from Congress. It is a fee that more or less ratchets up with demand and uh, it then provides service on an ongoing basis. And a challenge is that that fee, having been levied on interstate communications, um, is, is is far too small of a base for all the things we want to do with it. And nobody wants to deal with it because it's a talk about like, they should be taxing my internet access, right? Like I should be paying an internet access tax that will help pay to make sure that everyone can be connected to it. But nobody wants to propose that because they're afraid I'll freak out and vote against their party uh, if that comes up. Olivia, would am I more or less getting the dynamic there? There are political challenges to contributions reform for the universal service. That is a that is true. <laughs> and that is an understatement the way I said it. Um, but, you know, to realize though that efforts are afoot 
to, you know, provide more funding for this emergency broadband benefit because, you know, people have seen the value of telehealth. People have seen the, the value, I mean, the reliance on internet access to even apply for benefits, right? Like uh, unemployment, heating assistance, like you name it. Um, it's pretty critical. And the homework gap is very real. We've lost a lot of students. We just don't know where they are because of um, you know, connectivity issues. And so this is not you know, a problem that will disappear quickly. Um, this program needs to run longer, that's for sure. Um, and we need to figure out a more permanent, sustainable way to get to this robust broadband benefit. Um, this and is to subsidize like a, a, Yes, sorry. Some, some way, right? I mean, we've got was, a few different models here. I was trying to jump in right at the end to be cute and say, and to subsidize a working market, not a broken market, <laughs> ideally, because the subsidy of $50 a month is quite generous, but is overpaying relative to the cost of the technology and other things like there, there should be an effective subsidy that would deliver well for people without having to be that high and that costly. I think, Angela, I think you've had a lot of things to say, but um, have kept them bottled up. <laughs> But, but we have to say it's up to 50, right? I mean, right. yes. And, and it is your standard rate sort of set back in time moving forward. You can improve on that offer, but you can't, you know, inflate mm -hmm. your offering to, to, to get up to $50. So it's not, it's designed not to let that happen. Angela. No, I'm fine actually. Probably my my like my last throw it out there is um, that there's lots of information about EBB and this all this federal money. In fact, we have a blog post in draft form that's going out later today after Caitlin makes a sniff snappy little graphic for it. <laughs> that is what what's the stimulus digital equity? There's nothing specifically that says stimulus digital equity, but there's money that can be used for digital equity in the stimulus money in multiple multiple packages. So we've laid that out in one nice blog post and that will go out later today. Um, and there's lots of information about EBB and all of that on digitalinclusion.org. Go ahead, Olivia, and then I'm going to give Travis one last question. It is to stay tuned. There will be a uniform start date that will be announced as, you know, in the near future. Um, and that is when all providers can officially start their program and start, you know, that process of the reimbursements and, and customers can enroll. So stay tuned, please. This is an important space. Travis, you had a thousand questions. I think we're at nine hundred. Oh no, I'm, I'm just slowing down. I, you know, I just want to commend whoever the group is that came up with this because this is the in all the years I've been doing this, this is the very first, you know, that I've ever seen that I think really has a chance to make a difference. So whoever came up with this, kudos, and hopefully, uh, hopefully, we qualify to be a participant in it. So if anyone can help, if anyone at UCARES or whatever they're called is listening. USAC. <laughs> Who cares is a lot better though. Yeah, I don't know, whatever you I like know. I'll, I'll write that down. Yeah, for all the all the legislation acronyms that come up, someone in DC can come up yeah. with a way to make that work. Yeah. <laughs> um I um there's a lot of other things. I'm I'm not averse to coming back to this if if people who are listening have other questions that they want to send us. Um my email is Travis Carter at Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> I'll be right on that. <laughs> Um, uh, my email seriously is Christopher at ILSR.org. Angela? One more thing. Uh, one of the ways NDIA has determined that we can best support EBB is by having staff who can go out and talk to groups about this. So coalitions, um, 
associations that want to understand EBV more. We have multiple staff who are, um, as we speak, becoming EBV experts so that they can be the person who goes out and talks to someone. Excellent. Angela and Olivia, thank you so much for, for joining us to, um, to help us all understand this program. Well done. Thank you. Travis, thank you for putting up with me once again. That was Christopher talking with Travis Carter, Angela Seifer, and Olivia Wayne. We have transcripts for this and other podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. Follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle is at muninetworks. Subscribe to this and other podcasts from ILSR, including Building Local Power, Local Energy Rules, and the Composting for Community podcast. You can access them anywhere you get your podcasts. You can catch the latest important research from all of our initiatives if you subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ilsr.org. While you're there, please take a moment to donate. Your support in any amount keeps us going. Thank you to Arnie Hughesby for the song Warm Duck Shuffle, licensed through Creative Commons. This is episode 454 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.